So I have been told to tell you that <laughs> I said the phrase, um, I show you that I love you by making you cuddle me. <laughs> and uh, now that we talk about cats and me being a cat on the podcast, they were like, you need to tell Tracy right now. And by they, I mean Tyler. Tyler told me to tell okay. you. Okay, that makes more sense. Okay. <laughs> I don't know why I'm saying they. Like, I, I know him. He is yeah. my boyfriend. <laughs> yeah, that's really fun. I mean, you are. You're a human cat who sits on people's laps specifically to get their attention. Well, just you wait, chickadee, because when I see you next, I'm going to sit on your lap. <laughs> Even though I think I am quite a bit larger than you. <laughs> Oh, my God. I knew you were going to follow it up with, like, but I'd crush you. No. No. <laughs> Jump on it. I have at least four inches of height on you, so I'll just, like, put my legs in weird akimbo, like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> fashion. <laughs> oh, good Lord. So I thought this episode today was going to be just the worst. I don't know why I thought this topic was going to be terrible, and it was very fun. I agree. I I think because when you think of gluttony, it's like, what what stories come to mind? You know, like, what wrath, okay, you can think of things. Envy, okay, great, that makes sense. What would you think of for gluttony? It turns out um, some pretty fun things, apparently. Really fun things. Oh, hey, by the way, that's Tracy Harrison. <laughs> and that is Rowan Hall. And we, collectively, are the Willing and Fable podcast, a podcast where we talk about ancient myths, local legends, and why stories have staying power. So, like we were just talking about, today we're going to be discussing the second-to-last sin in our Seven Deadly Sins series, gluttony. According to DeadlySins.com, gluttony is an inordinate desire to consume more than that which one requires while Christianity.com describes it as the overindulgence or lack of self-restraint in food, drink, or wealth items, especially as status tokens. The word gluttony comes from the Latin, which means to gulp. And what is the punishment for gluttony, you might ask? The same DeadlySins.com article claims that those who commit the sin of gluttony are punished in hell by being forced to eat rats, toads, and snakes. Mmm. <laughs> I had the same reaction. It's like, mmm, yum. Which, honestly, I've heard of worse punishments. Because there are people who get so hungry now that they'll do that. Also, you can eat those foods in some places as a delicacy. I imagine they're not being prepared in a way that's super delicious. You don't think they're done up in a nice apricot glaze? <laughs> No. 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 So I don't want to be too on the nose, but I will admit I did have a big lunch before this episode, knowing we were going to be mentioning a lot of food. <laughs> I <laughs> didn't so want to be hungry while we were chatting and have my stomach growl because my stomach wants to be a podcaster sometimes when I'm hungry. <laughs> Oh, yeah, absolutely. Last night when I was lying in bed, my stomach grumbled and Otto, uh, Otto is Jamie and Tim's dog. And since they're on vacation the week we're recording this, I am solo hanging out with him and the animals. So my stomach growled last night and he didn't know what it was in the dark. 
and it was so loud that he growled. Are confusion. you kidding me? No. <laughs> oh, that is amazing. Yeah, it was. I'm going to go with it was a highlight, not a, not like a low moment. It was a really good moment. No, totally. And Tracy has been sending me little videos of Lola and Otto interacting because for a minute there, they were oil and water. But now they're cuddled up practically right near each other. Oh, yeah. And, and oil and water might even be a little too extreme. They were like hot water and cold water. And now they're like mixed together into lukewarm water. They were always okay. Now they're both passed out right behind me on the futon in the loft, totally asleep together. Tracy, I missed an amazing opportunity to say that they're like cats and dogs. (laughs) Oh, darn it. Wow. Okay, well, um, let's end this recording, restart. I'll set you up for the joke. Okay, ready? Set me up, set me up, set me up. Uh, oh, God, how did it start? Um, yeah, 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 yeah. They're like cats and dogs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. nailed it. Peak comedy. Excellent work. Excellent timing. Rapport. Yes, ending. Beautiful, beautiful. Love it. Great. <laughs> to quote my dear friend Tracy Harrison, chef's kiss. Mwah, 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 mwah. Mm, Love it. Chef's kiss. (laughs) All right. All right. All right. All right. Now that we've really gotten into the comedy, Tracy, we did not talk story this week at all. No, we didn't. I didn't know what you were doing. Um, I snuck as we got onto this call and looked to see what your topic was because I had no idea. And when I was finishing my story last night at nine o'clock, I noticed yours wasn't even started. Mm -mm. Nope. Nope. We really actually, we should address this because it sounds like I'm always kidding when I say I do my work in the wee hours of the morning before we podcast, but I was in it to win it from about midnight until 4 a.m. last night. I could have done it at any point. I wasn't even procrastinating on purpose. It's just Listen, the Lanon, she and I, we commingle <laughs> in the wee hours. You, you've nailed it down. You've got your, your peak performance hours. And I respect that. You're a morning owl. Er- yes, morning dove. <laughs> You're a morning owl. You're a morning dove. And I'm a night owl. And never the twain shall meet. Except for right now. When we record a podcast. Does it stress you out that you know, that you see very late at night that my portion of our podcast script is just utterly blank? Not even a little bit. I know you too well. You would rather die than procrastinate to the point where you can't record with me. Right. Like, you will always get it done. Yes. it's And I, I realized I sometimes open a ton of tabs and keep notes in an entirely different document before I start. And I was like, oh, God, I should move that into our our editing thing so that Tracy knows that I care. <laughs> I know you care. That is not a concern. I knew you'd get it together. So I um, was not worried. All right, Tracy, tell me about your story. So I knew I wanted to cover this general topic at some point because I've always been vaguely interested in it the way that every 
goth emo kid is vaguely interested in in witchy type things. Right, right. And when I was trying to figure out what to do for gluttony, I remembered how there's like all the demonology, which is the the collection of stories about demons. And so I Googled who the demon of gluttony is. Beelzebub came up. And Beelzebub's a demon that I have heard about my whole life. I mean, I feel like he's one that, you know, he's in Bohemian Rhapsody. Bo Burnham wrote a song about him years ago. He's in uh, American Gods. Like, it's just a fairly common name. So I wanted to dive in and kind of just dip my toe into the world of Christian demonology. Hmm. So this week, I'm going to be talking to you about Beelzebub and Christian demonology. Okay, I'm very excited because when I think of demonology, I think of the play, The Screwtape Letters. The play, specifically, (laughs) Um, which is based on Christian demonology, but is not a definitive collection. So bring it. I mean, and that's kind of the case with all of it. There is no real, like, definitive collection, but I'm going to start with my story and then we'll get into the history. Mm, Okay. In the second book of Kings, it is told that King Uzziah fell grievously ill and was bedridden. Instead of praying to the Israelite god, he sent a messenger to go and consult Baal the god of Ekron. He wanted to see if he would recover. So, you see, he worshipped me. And he was punished for doing so, as God did not look kindly on someone worshipping a lowly thing like me. They say my name started as a mockery. Beelzebub, Lord of the Flies. Long ago, Philistines worshipped a god called Baal, and he was known to destroy flies as they were the cause of sickness. Well, Israelites use the name Ba'zabul as a pun to refer to the god Baal as dung and his worshippers as flies. Eventually, the name Bazabul turned to Bezalbul, which turned to Beelzebub. And here we are. I am known for many things, many more than you could possibly be aware of, but I am most proud of a few things. First, that as a seraphim, highest of the order of angels, I fled the archangel Gabriel and escaped from heaven. They say I fell down into hell, but it was more like a euphoric freefall into the rightful place where I was meant to be. The second thing I'm proud of is my position. I am the right hand to Lucifer Morningstar, king of hell himself. You may know him as Satan, and though that name is often given to me, it is not correct to refer to me as such. He and I are different and I serve him loyally. You might hear a story or two about my rebellion against him, but that is a lie. After all, who can trust a demon to tell the truth? Hesperus, or as you know the star, Venus, represents my glory as prince of the demons. When you look up into the night sky and see that light blinking back on you, take a moment to bask in my eternal eminence. I do my best work through tyrants and demons who trick mortals into worshipping them. I lead priests away from the cloth, and I start wars. 
but I am most closely associated with gluttony. My six brothers and I each represent what you would call a sin. Lucifer, pride. Mammon, greed. Asmodeus, lust. Leviathan, envy. Sathanus, wrath. Belphegor, sloth. Though I resent being put into such a simple box, I do wear my titles proudly. Prince of Hell, Demon of Gluttony, Prince of False Gods, Lord of the Flies. Even Jesus Christ himself was once accused of using my power. It was written in Mark 3.22 that I was the one who helped him exercise demons. He was accused of associating himself with me in order to expel demons, but as he pointed out rightly, it made no sense for me to help him. Why would I undermine my own efforts by assisting him? Later, it was that writer, John Milton, in 1667 who called Lucifer, Astaroth, and myself the Unholy Trio. I like that name. Unholy Trio. Rolls off the tongue, don't you think? Right. I believe I was telling you about my great and many deeds. I'd be remiss if I left out the impeccable work I did in the Aix-en-Provence with Sister Madeleine de Mondol de la Palude. She was 17 years old and a French aristocrat who entered the Ursuline convent at Marcel in 1607. She eventually confessed to having an intimate relationship with Father Louis Gaufridi. And despite being sent away, she began to have convulsions. She was shaking, and she showed other symptoms of demonic possession. But it wasn't just her. The condition spread, and other nuns began to show the same symptoms. Exorcism was ineffective. And though Gaufridi denied it, history says he made a pact with me to become the bewitcher of young nuns. Whether or not this is true is irrelevant. What really matters is that people still speak of it today. The tragic, demonic possession of young nuns in the Aix-en-Provence in France. This last one was particularly fun. You've heard of the Salem witch trials, no doubt? Well, you're welcome. My name came up so many times during the trial that afterwards, the Reverend Cotton Mather wrote a pamphlet titled... Of Beelzebub and his plot. A dull read, but any press is good press. Speaking of press, in 1818, Jacques-Auguste Simon Colon de Plancy wrote Dictionnaire Infernal, a book that later included 69 illustrations of me and my brethren. The book claims on its cover that it is the Infernal Dictionary or a universal library on the beings, characters, books, deeds, and causes which pertain to the manifestations and magic of trafficking with hell. Divinations, occult sciences, grimoires, marvels, errors, prejudices, traditions, folktales, and the various superstitions, and generally all manner of marvelous, surprising, mysterious, and supernatural beliefs. This is a much less dull read. 
So the next time you look up in the night sky or you feel inclined to overindulge, give a wink and a nod to your good, dear friend Beelzebub. I'll be waiting. And I'll be watching. Wow, I was surprised by how much of that I don't know. I was too. All I knew about Beelzebub coming into this was that he's always depicted being surrounded by flies. So like I knew he was associated with flies. But I didn't know about the origins of his name. I didn't know about his association with the demonic possessions in France or how often his name was brought up in the Salem Witch Trials, which is probably because people for a while really mixed him up with Satan and Lucifer. So the three kind of became all the same thing for a while. And then all three split off into separate characters at a certain point. I was aware that they were all different characters, but I will admit that I wasn't aware of much more than that. I knew that Beelzebub was Lucifer's loyal right-hand man and the fall mm-hmm. of the angels, but I I love all of these extra names that he wears. Yeah. Honestly, the names of the Christian characters associated with hell, they're just so, so story worthy. They're like, they conjure up so much imagery. Lord of the Flies. Prince of False Gods. There's a story I didn't look too closely into because I wanted to focus on the gluttony aspect of him, where he has more to do with envy and ends up splitting into a bunch of flies. And then that's associated with how he got the name Prince of False Gods. That's his other major title is like Lord of the Flies, Prince of False Gods. But when in the around 1800s, they started really classifying hell and its hierarchy and how it was all laid out. That's when he shifted more into being the right hand of Lucifer and demon of gluttony but for a while lucifer and satan were separate but then they also came together it's very complex right we kind of got a taste of that in my lilith story Mm -hmm. satan had a different name of samael it's it's all very complicated the tangle i was also surprised when we did our research you know when i was picking my story i was specifically think of gluttony as overindulgence in food and drink. But a lot of what I was reading about gluttony and even one of our quotes includes wealth items and status tokens. Right, which you would think would be greed. Exactly. But but I could see it being different from greed in the sense of, I think of gluttony as taking away from others. So taking too much at the expense of others and Mm. greed being the endless want of material possessions. They're really close. I'm not saying that there's a super fine, like hard and fast line between them, but that was kind of how I came to think of it. I think we probably need to try to get our hands on a PDF or a copy of the Dictionnaire Infernal. It is all I want in the world. 
I'll, I'll tell you more about it. So Okay. Um, let me scroll down in my notes. I had that for later on, but I'm too excited. The, so this is a quote from Wikipedia. The Dictionnaire Infernal, or Infernal Dictionary, is a book on demonology describing demons organized in hierarchies. It was written by Jacques-Auguste Simon Colon de Palancy. I am terrible at French, you guys. I worked so hard this week with all the French names. So I apologize if I butchered that. But it was first published in 1818. There were several editions of the book. Perhaps the most famous is the 1863 edition, which includes 69 illustrations by Louis Le Breton. Breton? Did I get that right? Rome's I'm going with French it. I am. <laughs> Those illustrations depicted the appearance of several of the demons. Many, but not all of these images, were later used in S.L. McGregor Mather's edition of The Lesser Key of Solomon. So I just want to add that to our library, especially for the illustrations. They're cool. You can find them online. They're these black and white pencil charcoal ink drawings of each of the demons. Mm. And Beelzebub's is a drawing of a fly. And it's really cool. I also just like that there are 69 drawings. Cheeky. (laughs) Speaking of numbers, um, do you want to know where the number 666 came from? I definitely do, but I'm also thrown off that you said it as 666. Is that weird? Yeah, 100%. Isn't it How just 666? Probably. I don't know. <laughs> I'm just, 666? listen, yeah. I'm just poking fun, but also you totally took me off guard. <laughs> Isn't it fun when, like, you realize something that you think is normal is totally weird to other people? I, yes, that has been my quarantine experience, I think. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure a lot of people agree. All right, so. All right, so tell me about 666. In 1467, Alfonso de Spina asserted that the number of demons was 133,316,666. This idea that one-third of the angels turned into demons seems to be due to an exegesis of the Book of Revelations, 12.3 to 12.9. John Wyer, in his Pseudomonarchia Daemonum in 1583, after a complicated system of hierarchies and calculations, estimated the number of demons as 4,436,622, divided into 666 legions, each legion composed by 6,666 demons, and all of them ruled by 66 hellish dukes, princes, kings, etc. The Lesser Key of Solomon from the 17th century copied the division in legions from the Pseudomonarchia Daemonum, but added more demons, and so more legions. It is suggestive that both Spina and Wire use 666 and other numbers composed by more than one six to calculate the number of demons, 1,333,316,666 demons, 666 legions, 6,666 demons in each legion, 66 rulers. Hi, editing Tracy here. What you just heard was me absolutely butchering those numbers. 
The correct numbers are 133,316,666 demons, 666 legions, 6,666 demons in each legion with 66 rulers. Now back to the show. Therefore, the demonic number was 666. Why? What is the reason for figuring out the number of demons that specifically? I think because, well, two things. One, I think when you get that obsessed with the idea that demons are real and you need to figure out about them, you want to be the one to solve it. So you think back to this, this is 1467, 1583, 1600s. It's a time when magic and science were often the same thing. Think alchemy trying to turn lead into gold. So I think the idea of figuring out things this specifically was more of a scientific pursuit than just a a thing to do because you're bored. I respect it. I respect the amount of time, but I am baffled. Because it knowing that number of demons does not mean you know their names or where they are or where they are going to be. But it gives you that feeling of control because you feel like you have more information. And the more information you get, the more power you can have over them. So this is like counting calories, but for demons. <laughs> I mean, kind of, sure. <laughs> All right. I, I'm actually really glad to know that because I've always wondered about 666, but never enough to look it up. Yeah, and it, it seems like it came from one person figuring out that one third of angels split off and then someone else taking that number and doing more advanced calculations. But then they they always kept the number six involved, which I still don't know why everything had to involve the number six. But it is ultimately that whole complex calculation is where we get 666 from and why that's considered such a demonic number. I know that seven and three are both important numbers in story, which is making me want to say seven is associated with the Christian God, but I don't really want to be held to that. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. If, I don't really know much about sacred numbers or numerology or any of that. Oh, absolutely not. No, I don't know anything. Anyway, so us trying to play with numbers aside, because I am no math lover, <laughs> I know that you had some other history you yes. wanted to tell me. So as I said at the top of the story, this discussion of Beelzebub and Christian demonology, because this is specifically Christian demonology. There are other forms of demonology. Um, this is the very first toe dip into this for us. There is so much to unpack and so many contradictions and a ton of history that I could easily spend an entire episode just breaking it down. So for this particular episode, I'm going to do my best to give you a high-level overview of what, in general, Christian demonology is. Tracy is trying to tell you that there will be a future episode about demonology. It's already on the list, guys. Buckle your seatbelts. <laughs> yes, I would love to do that. And I'd love to get into the Malleus Maleficarum, which is the book uh, called The Hammer of Witches and that whole. Oh, so good. Back to Beelzebub. Beelzebub, fallen angel, lord of the flies, demon above whom 
only Satan sat was the demon of gluttony and one of the seven princes of hell. Having freed himself from the archangel Gabriel, he and his brothers, Lucifer, Asmodeus, Leviathan, Belphegor, Mammon, Astaroth, Belial, although sometimes he's replaced with Satan as a separate figure from Lucifer, and many, many hmm. others fell from heaven and began to rule hell. There is contradiction. Um, Belial, Belial. Editing Tracy. It's Belial. But... Some say he fell first and was originally the ruler of hell, and then they all fell down. Yes, and, that's the story I'm familiar right. with. And then, you know, Lucifer overpowered him and took over. Others ignore him completely and replace him with Satan. Some say that he fell with them. Like I said, contradicting histories all over the place. I've even seen some modern stories use Belial as a different name for Lucifer, Satan, as one figure. Yeah. They get squished together. Beelzebub, Lucifer, Satan, Belial, still Belial. I don't get it right ever. It's all over the place. Well, it's interesting. It is sort of a bit of polytheism and monotheism mixing this separating and combining and restructuring the hierarchy of all of these godlike figures. I think that's a fair way to think about it and to analyze it, except for the fact that you don't actually worship the demons, but they are prominent figures. And I think it contradicts the idea of, you know, there's just one god and that's it. It's there's the whole hierarchy of angels, the whole hierarchy of demons, and they're fluctuating throughout time. Right, right. I don't mean to imply that any Christians are worshiping demons. I, I more mean to say that, yes, there is this one kind of all-seeing God. Not unlike in my Baron Samadhi story, there was this one right. God figure and then all of these Loa. lesser yeah. spirits who had— Yes, the Loa, who had— their own power to manifest change in the world yeah, in kind of a magical, divine way. Yeah, I think the difference is, you know, in the, the Christianity version, it's like good versus evil, whereas with the Loa, it was kind of just, I mean, Baron Semity himself, he was never really evil, but, you know, he was related to fertility and death, and it wasn't one or the other. Exactly. Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. So to quote Wikipedia... In one understanding, Baal-zebub is translated literally as Lord of the Flies. It was long ago suggested that there was a relationship between the Philistine god and cults of flies, referring to a view of them as pests feasting on excrement. This is confirmed by the Ugaritic text which depicts Baal expelling flies, which are the cause of a person's sickness. So that's where the name came from, as a pun to mock those who worshipped Baal and his ability to expel flies. They kind of described him as the god of dung and his worshippers like flies surrounding him. But it's also possible that the name meant Lord of Zebul, because at one point his name was Bezalbul or Beelzebul before Beelzebub. And that would mean he was Lord of a place called Zebul, but that's also unclear. I mean, a lot of this... These stories come from a time in which people thought that maggots spontaneously generated mm -hmm. on meat that was left out. 
So it's interesting that there is this fly theme that is so closely integrated into badness because truly they are a a signifier that bad things are happening to food. So it's it's a little bit of the science meeting. Right. And before, without even thinking of it that way, think about it from before knowing what germs were. All you knew is that when a sick person got near another sick person, they got sick. So it's completely reasonable to think it was the creatures flying around that were spreading that sickness. In the case of mosquitoes, that is true. But if you don't know that it's mosquitoes passing on, say, what turns out to be malaria, it is reasonable to think it could be the flies. Absolutely. And also, I should say, flies are very specific here. The word could also be generally translated as kind of flying creature or flying insect. Hmm, interesting. Okay. This is making me want to reread The Lord of the Flies when I don't have to do a book report about it. No, I don't want... Nope, no thank you. Have fun. Not for me. Oh, I loved that book. I did not. Ugh. All right. (laughs) So, lastly, an overview of Christian demonology. So, Christian demonology is the study of demons from a Christian point of view. Some suggest the origins of early Greek Old Testament demonology can be traced to two distinctive and often competing mythologies of evil. One caused by the fall of man in the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and the other the fall of angels in the antediluvian period. Thus, the first story traces the source of evil to Satan's transgression by his refusal to obey God's command to venerate newly created Adam. In contrast, The second story bases the origin of demons on the story of the fallen watchers led by Azazel. To quote Wikipedia, Theologians like Thomas Aquinas wrote concerning the behaviors of which Christians should be aware, while witch hunters like Heinrich Kramer wrote about how to find and what to do with people they believed were involved with demons. Some texts, such as the Lesser Key of Solomon or the Grimoire of Pope Honorus, although these, the earliest manuscripts were from well after these individuals had died, they are written with instructions on how to summon demons in the name of God and often were claimed to have been written by individuals respected within the church. These later texts were usually more detailed, giving names, ranks, and descriptions of demons individually and categorically. Most Christians commonly reject these texts as either diabolical or fictitious. I didn't know that people were writing about trying to summon demons in the name of the Christian God. I think it came from trying to summon them so you could destroy them. So on the line of people believing that they are either diabolical or fictitious, I... Just immediately imagine someone with like a Grinch grin <laughs> doodling a demon and then key smashing in a name and making one up and just trying to sneak it on in there with the rest of the text. I mean, with how much of this is fluctuating and changing over the years, you have to wonder, you know, was there a guy in 1487 who was just struggling with something internally and wrote it out as a, a demon that's now in the Dictionnaire Infernal because of a person's experience in their day-to-day life? 
you could go really, really metaphorical with it and say that the experiences of people in their daily life are demons and they are worth uh, acknowledging as higher beings of punishment that you bring upon yourself. You could. <laughs> yeah, I can I can make everything spiritual and malarkey. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the first toe dip into demonology. Uh, basically, to to recap... It is the Christian demonology. Christian demonology is the study and analysis of the hierarchical structure of hell and all the demons within it, both the seven princes of hell and the categories of demons below them. And they all have reign over their own dominion. So they are not omnipotent. No one demon, even Lucifer, knows everything all the time. Can you know? There's even debates about if they can be in two places at once. The overwhelming answer being no. Even Satan can't be in two places at once physically. So that's what the study is, and it's grown so much over the years of people changing and fluctuating and arguing and debating and studying and researching. And I just think it is so interesting to look into. The same thing of eventually we'll cover the hierarchy of heaven as well and the order of angels. Oh yeah, there's just as much there as there is. Even more, actually. All right, you do have an all do hell. No, I'm just kidding. Um, It does remind me of the idea of to name something is to know it by giving all of these demons, I should say by trying to understand all of these demons and what they do, then you're more more familiar and therefore more prepared. Yes, but also more susceptible. I always think about it when, you know, when you're feeling sick and you just generally don't feel good, but you don't really complain about it because you don't really want to be sick and you don't, you know, you just don't feel good. And then as soon as you decide you have a cold, at least if you're me, you don't shut up about it. You're like, I'm sick now. Like, I have a cold. And I feel like giving it that name makes it so much more real and concrete. And then you're, you know, then I suddenly feel so much sicker because I've put the name to it. Mm, okay. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. I I need to think on the next time I have a cold and how I handle it, but yes. I also think about it with anxiety. You know, it's so great that I now have a name for it and I know what it is and I could combat it, but in some ways, it took me a long time to not use that as a crutch. Ooh, yes, I completely understand that. Right, before you knew what it was, you were just fighting so hard to be okay and to not have it be a thing. And then once you decided the thing that you were dealing with was anxiety, for me, it made it worse for a bit as I used it as a crutch before I overcame the other side of it. So I think there's a double-edged sword with with identifying and naming something. Ultimately, with things like mental health, it is so much better, so, so much better to name it. But it's important to be aware of what that can do before it gets to that place where it's better. Absolutely. With all of that mental health tangent, that's all I have on demonology. I want to hear your story. Are you looking for a way to show someone that you care while still remaining socially distant? Why not send them a care package? Diamond Jewelry works with people and small businesses to create individualized care packages for any occasion. Starting at only $25, you can tell them what the occasion is, any specifics about the person it's for, and 
boom, they create the custom care package of your dreams. They'll even include a mask to help people stay safe from coronavirus. That is so cool. These care packages, guys, can include anything from jewelry to socks, candy, hats, scarves, books, puzzles, candles, and so much more. When Tracy surprised me out of the blue and sent me one of these care packages at the beginning of quarantine, my favorite two things were this amazing smelling candle and a tea that I am still trying to make last because I love it so much. What did you tell them about me to have them send, like, the exact right things? It was so simple. I told them that you love vanilla yep, and that you really love to curl up and be really cozy. And so they took that and, and knew that it meant that candle and tea was the perfect combination for you. At this point, everyone in my family will send out care packages for pretty much any occasion, including housewarmings, birthdays, get well soon baskets, engagements, baby showers, and so much more. We love diamond jewelry care packages. So tell someone that you love, that you love them, by sending a diamond jewelry care package. That's D-I-A-M-E-N-T jewelry.com or diamond jewelry on Instagram. And don't forget to use the code WILLINGANDFABLE10 to get 10% off your order. Friends, be cool like Tracy. Send a diamond jewelry care package. To me. (laughs) Okay. I want you to take your mind all the way back to episode 4. And my story about Sleeping Beauty. Okay, got it. I'm there. Try to recall that I mentioned the name Charles Peralt. Are you thinking about that name? Yes. Okay, great. That's where I want you, because today I'm going to talk to you about ogres. Okay. Tim suggested this, and thank goodness for him, because it was an absolute blast. So, we're thinking about Charles Peralt. Now, ogres are often compared to or even sometimes synonymous with giants and trolls. Merriam-Webster Dictionary says that an ogre is both a hideous giant of fairy tales and folklore that feeds on human beings and a dreaded person or object. That is an interesting point. Ogres are fantastical monsters as well as names we use as metaphor for the horrible, gluttonous villains of reality. Because they are known for being particularly cruel and barbaric with an insatiable hunger, they are often used as a descriptor for people writers would like us to view in the same way. They've been likened to political dictators who destroy lives and spread violent regimes in the same way an ogre might consume a meal. One book, Michael Tournier's 1970s novel The Earl King, or the Ogre, associates ogres with Nazis. But ogres, and the flesh-devouring giants of story, are most commonly linked with folklore and fairy tale. They are often described as being unintelligent and bumbling, but violent in their almost cannibalistic hunger. 
They often reside outside the bounds of a town or village in seclusion, but sometimes parents will say that a child's bad behavior will lure a hungry ogre to their bedside. Which would have really destroyed me as a child. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I would have been okay. Yeah, no, no. Okay. They range in size from massive to only a bit larger than a human. Usually, they have large, ugly features, a rounded head, massive mouths filled with dirty teeth, tons of hair, and of course, large bellies. They carry with them a horrible stench from eating so many people and rarely seem to wear more than a loincloth. Where European ogres traditionally come in earth tones, the Japanese oni come in a variety of colors and have unnatural features. But the oni deserve their own episodes, so we're going to stay in Europe for today. To quote the New World Encyclopedia, the word ogre is spelled the same in English as it is in French, where it originates. The word ogre is quite possibly a derivative of the Latin orgo, which is a later function of orco, which translates as demon. It probably ultimately derives from the Latin Orcus, Roman god of the underworld. Okay, Tracy, I get it. I left you in France with Charles Perrault, and I haven't gone back there, and you're probably wondering why I did that. In 12th century France, Christian de Toyer wrote the verse romance Percival, the quest for the grail. This is the first evidence of the word as it is used now. A translation of the French from his verse. And it is written that he will come again to all the realms of Logres, known as the land of ogres, and destroy them with that lance. Okay, and this is the part you've Okay, been I was for. asking, I was like, I still haven't gotten to Charles Perrault yet. Charles Perrault's 1696 book, The Tales of Mother Goose, is credited as the cause for the rising popularity of these monsters. Ogres appear in the book's stories Puss in Boots, Hop O' My Thumb, and Sleeping Beauty. The collection as a whole is inextricably linked to the popularity of fairy tales, but diving even deeper into episode 4. Jean-Baptiste Basilier, who wrote Sun, Moon, and Talia, the horrifying original, original Sleeping Beauty that I based my telling on, is sometimes credited as having used the phrase orco, or ogre, in its Italian origin. One source I read for this episode today said that Basilier included references to ogres in his tale of Talia, Though I didn't find them in the translation of the story I read, others of his stories definitely seem to have those references. Where would they be in the story, I think, is the part that confuses me. Well, for Sleeping Beauty, Peralt definitely mentioned ogres, and one of his mentions was specifically dragging the evil queen by calling her an ogress. And this is the first instance of the feminine form of the word. And to be clear, that woman definitely deserved that name. Yeah, she was a monster. 
There is also in the translation I read a few brief sentences about people fearing ogres in the area, but there aren't really main character ogres. Some have likened the villains of other stories to ogres. Hansel and Gretel and Little Red Riding Hood both have a witch and a wolf, respectively, that lurk in the woods to eat children. Some even reference the beast in Beauty and the Beast. And while it's interesting to see the ways that stories are interconnected, I like the differences in each villain and personally don't subscribe to the belief that every human-eating creature is an instant ogre derivative. Okay, I'm glad you said that because I was going to chime in and say that, that I I think it reduces to me what makes the story so interesting of the difference between the witch and what that means and a wolf and what that means and what the beast really is. I think it's great that these stories can include ogres, but I I wouldn't say that everything that has elements of an ogre. And on the other hand, we have Grendel in Beowulf, the Cyclops in the Odyssey, the giant in Jack and the Beanstalk, and Humbaba in the Epic of Gilgamesh. And though each of these stories is distinct, it's easier to see the ogreish quality of each of those villains because they are usually described as ugly. They are giant figures that heroes have to slay. And that accounts for a lot of the overlap between giants and ogres and trolls in a way that does make sense to me. Because we're not taking canonically different creatures, uh, like wolf, witch, and comparing them. I completely agree with that. I think that makes a lot of sense. So in modern story, you'll find references to ogres in the Chronicles of Narnia, Dungeons and Dragons, Magic the Gathering. hey Dungeons and Dragons. I also like Magic the Gathering. <laughs> the Elder Scrolls, the Spiderwick Chronicles, Warcraft, and more. They are absolutely a figure of the fantasy genre. Okay. Let's dive into my story of a gluttonous ogre. And fair warning, this one's going to get a little bit gory, fairy tale style. I watch them go until I am standing in the woods alone. Then I watch even longer until I'm sure I can't even catch their shadows growing smaller within the trees. They're the last human faces I'll ever see and maybe the friendliest faces I've ever known. Every year, a child is sent into the woods as an offering to the ghastly ogre that lives in its dark depths. I am orphaned, and a criminal many times over for stealing bits of bread and apples for food. I knew, I always knew, that somehow it would be me. There are only so many children at the work farm, and and though the years keep coming upon me, the options are few. I heard a boy once say that they won't send anyone too old. The meat isn't supple enough, he pressed. Still, they picked me, no matter my growing nearly too old, very nearly old enough to point the finger towards someone else to sacrifice. I've always been impossibly small. I've never in my whole life had enough to eat. Now I walk forward in the woods, remembering last meals, a moldy oat cake, and last faces. 
I imagine each tree as my gallows and each shadow as the one that might finally crack my skull and sip my brain out from my ears. Days fall into night and creatures begin to chirp and call as I walk from the last slip of path into the underbrush. Wings flutter above me and small animals chatter and leaves below. I walk for so long, I'm sure I've circled around no less than three times. Hello, you. The ogre purrs at me like thunder moving a mountain. The hill I thought crested before me unfurls into a figure so massive that my neck hinges to look up at him. His earthen, craggy form bulges out at all angles, splitting the bounds of my imagination. His eyes blink down at me, two massive moons beaming with wanting. You're a bit late to the party. His grin is so wide it seems to wrap his massive skull. A human hand hangs from his monolithic teeth, like a glove flapping in his breath among the refuse. I can see in horrifying detail the blood under the long and desperate fingernails of his victim. He moves slowly, every step a quake that must be felt all the way back in the alley I once called home. The ogre's bulbous nose snuffles at my scent as if I am a delicious perfume in contrast with his putrid rot. His hands clench and unclench in anticipation as he waddles in ignorant hatred towards me. Little child, little child, come and let me eat you up and drink you down and save your town from certain death. I know the look on his face. He's blind with wanting. It terrifies me and I shake with fear. Little child, little child, I'll eat your flesh and crack your bones to save your home from all my wrath. On the last word, he lunges for me, but he is slow, as I knew he would be. Slow because he's never had to fight a day in his life. He's not hungry enough to understand that I want to live. Against every fraction of my intention, I feel tears pricking at my eyes as I scramble between each swipe and grasp. I have to do something, I think, as I fall to my knees over some cloying root or shrub. He snarls and reaches again. Little child, tricky child. I jump as his fingers curl and I am running, scrambling up his arm as his befuddled, blinking eyes try to track me. I hardly have a moment to realize my own plan before I am diving, leaping through his gummy eyelashes. With all my hatred and hunger, I reach with my own gnashing teeth and tearing claws through the warm wetness of his eyeball. He howls in pain, screaming so that it reverberates around me in a cacophony of failure. He 
failed to kill me. I scrape and savage my way forward for every child that met their end between his grinding teeth. I do not stop until he falls in the dirt and I am rattled around the cage of his bloodied skull. For a long, horrible, quiet eternity, I sit in stillness amongst his internal warmth. I wonder if I can discover some familiar thought in the beast's head as his brain throbs around me. A sameness that would tell me I might have reasoned my way out of this, saved myself a better way. But in him I find only satisfaction, and in myself I know only hunger. I crawl out, unable to look at the world around me until I find myself back at the gates of my village. The torches blaze in high heat, and dozens of shocked faces meet me at the vast wooden wall. For the first time I imagine how I look to them. Gore drips down my face and trails from every step. I am bloody and snarling and alive, no matter their best efforts to the contrary. I defeated the ogre. Despite myself, I lick my lips. Yum. I think my favorite part of that story is that you framed so well the hunger of the main character and the hunger of the ogre. I thought I, I had two thoughts. One, I was sitting there thinking that is such a clever way to frame it. And two, I want you to read me a bedtime story every night before bed, please. <laughs> and thank you. My little niece, when she was a super tiny little mooper, I used to read her her bedtime stories in a different accent every time. And she yeah. would push the book at me and then just kind of gesture for me to do a different voice. <laughs> it was very cute. If I could get away with being that adorable, I would do that to you all the time. <laughs> yeah, I uh, listen, this was my 3 a.m. brain. Um, I, I do. You said it first, and I think that you're right. The thing about gluttony is that it means that there is someone who has too much and someone who has not enough. Mm-hmm. And, you know, probably in my story, the real villains are the town. But it was a, sto a story about an ogre, so. I mean, I, I think you could, I think the townspeople are wrong, obviously, you know, sending people away. You can chalk that up to fear. It sounds like that did quell the ogre based on the way the ogre said, you know, I'll save the town from my wrath. So the ogre is also, you know, a villain, objectively, in, in this sense. I like the idea of what happens next to the main character. Mm -hmm. What becomes of them having mm -hmm. gone through this? You know, was this a metamorphosis for them? The way you framed it at the end, it's almost as if they become a version of the ogre to that town. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the idea that a lot of times when you slay the villain, you come back the villain. Mm-hmm. I actually kind of want to talk about that because... So I mentioned the Odyssey earlier, but it was one of my inspirations for this story. In the Odyssey, Odysseus defeats Polyphemus, who is a cyclops. 
Uh, and of course, you know, they are canonically different characters. But like I mentioned, there is this whole genre of giant-sized villains being mm-hmm. defeated by small heroes. And ogres fall into that category. And I realized in my research that the Odyssey, there's Baylor, the giant from the Fomorians, there's David and Goliath. They all have an element of plucking out or harming the eyeballs of the giant character. I watched you nodding and then you stopped nodding the second I got there. <laughs> In some ways, I'm surprised just by the, you know, the same way that you, you are when you realize any connection. But then the more you think about it, it makes sense. You know, one, eyes are just generally really vulnerable. But think of creatures with a lot of scales and a lot of armor or men in suits of armor. You need your eyes to see. They are inherently always vulnerable. So when you have this creature that feels larger than life that you can't get to you can't hurt what can you hurt the eyes i was familiar with david shooting goliath between the eyes but it wasn't until i started reading more of these stories because people link them with ogres that i kind of put my finger on it so speaking of eyes i referenced again the same science fiction book that i loosely referenced in my Lilith story and no one messaged us about it so this is officially easter egg number two and I'm gonna need listeners who figure it out to message I have us. no idea what it is it's okay I is it one I, that uh, I would, is it one that I would know probably not it's not really your type of book okay I have two guesses but they're just based on the idea of science fiction Like, all I can think of is either Stranger in a Strange Land or Ender's Game. Mm, Okay, first of all, I love Stranger in a Strange Land. Right. And second of all, it's definitely Ender's Game. Yes! (laughs) I did it, you guys! (laughs) It's it's one of my favorite parts about Ender's Game, actually, that he burrows in through the giant's eyeball. Very gross. So... I would like to close with a bit of history and science for my dear friend Tracy. Yay! Some people believe that ogres actually come from a Scandinavian forefather cult that existed until about the 10th or 11th century. They had sacred burial mounds, which housed the guardian spirits of powerful founding fathers who required respect. The threat of the spirit eating children may have come about to keep children from from playing among those burial mounds. When Christianity was introduced to the area, the spirits of these mounds were demonized. And this may remind you of my Lilith story with the people of the mounds. Right, and fairies and fairy mounds. Exactly. And, Mm -hmm. you know, ogres are kind of part of that group of fairy tale culture. But some members of the scientific community believe... Stories about ogres may come from Cro-Magnons coming into contact with Neanderthals. The idea being that Neanderthals were a more brutish, hairy group of others. To quote the New World Encyclopedia again, Finnish paleontologist Born Curtin 
has also entertained this theory, fusing knowledge and imagination to suggest that trolls and ogres are a distant memory of an encounter with Neanderthals by Homo sapiens Cro-Magnon ancestors from 40,000 years ago during their migration into Northern Europe. As new fossil evidence comes to light in Asia, it is conceivable that Asian beliefs in ogres could also be attributed to a collectively shared memory of human ancestors. I think that makes a lot of sense, and I think it also comes along with the idea of if you find bones of those people and they seem so much bigger than you, it makes sense to think there's a giant race that used to exist. Um, The same way that people would find bones of dinosaurs or other real animals and create mythical creatures out of them. I'm so glad you mentioned that because I was going to say that. You're exactly on track with what I was thinking when I was doing this research. This, the way that we discover things. And the I've been reading, funnily enough, a lot about how paleontologists traditionally underfeather dinosaurs. That's so funny. I was going to say dragons. Paleontologists traditionally underfeather dragons. Um... But there are a lot of funny drawings going around now, but also very serious ones about dinosaurs that may have had more body fat and more plumage than we think of in kind of the Jurassic Park imagery. Oh, absolutely. They definitely, I mean, they definitely were very feathered. Um, And one of the closest ancestors we have that's still living today to dinosaurs. Chickens! Chickens! (laughs) Chickens are such dinosaurs. I grew up with chickens around all the time, and they're little sons of guns. Yeah, they'll, they'll come at your feet and your ankles. But if they ever come at your feet or your ankles, you can grab them by the feet and flip them upside down. It doesn't hurt them, but due to their internal anatomy, it puts them to sleep right away. I actually didn't know that. Obviously, don't flip them violently. Just put them upside down and hold them by their little feet. And they'll go to sleep. <laughs> this has been your willing and fable fact of the day. Thank you for tuning in. <laughs> also, please find the picture that I am in love with that's of the T-Rex that's drawn to look like a little chickadee. Oh, my God. I need to see that. That sounds amazing. I'll find it for you. Okay, so we have a bonus story today. Tracy, do you want to read it or should I? I think you should read this one. I want to hear you tell it to me. I just want to sit and listen to you tell me the story. Okay, so this is a ghost story that was sent in by one of our closest friends, Brooke. And we were here for this story. So we wanted to start with it, A, because we adore Brooke, but also because it's really fun to start with a story that you actually remember. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, I'm going to read from her email. Years ago, my friends, Cough Cough, the creators, hosts of this podcast, and I went to Eastern State Penitentiary's haunted attraction, Terror Behind the Walls. If you're in the Philadelphia area, I highly suggest checking out this location for this specific haunt or one of their historical walking tours they hold year-round. Also, if you're interested, there are great episodes from Ghost Adventures and BuzzFeed Unsolved that really go into detail about the history and highlight the paranormal activity of Eastern State. Anyway, the night we went, we went through the attraction, and nothing out of the ordinary happened other than being thoroughly spooked. 
At the end of the attraction, they have a little museum room set to learn more about the history of the penitentiary. While we were milling about that room, reading the displays, I caught a glimpse of what I assumed to be a scare actor walking on the third floor of the building across the yard from us. The figure was roughly about 5'10 and wearing dark clothing. I turned to look, but only turned in time to see the figure disappear into the dark building. I excitedly turned to a worker nearby and asked if that's how the haunt actors got around without being seen by the guests, feeling really cool that I was able to spot a behind-the-scenes moment. But the worker quickly told me that the floor is closed off to everyone, haunt actors included, because of safety issues. She told me no one could be up there. It quickly dawned on me that I had a paranormal experience without even realizing it. To this day, I can't explain what I saw because I am so certain I saw a human figure walk across what I found out to be very unstable ground. Over the years, I've been back to Eastern State numerous times, but have never had an experience like this again. But I would really love to see that figure again one day to prove it wasn't just a shadow or my mind playing tricks on me. Ghost emoji. Everyone should also go follow Brooke on TikTok. She's at B.E. Fitzgerald, um, and she's B.E.Fitzgerald on Instagram. She is one of the coolest, funniest, most charming, adorable little hobbit people you'll ever meet. Yeah, her cottagecore TikTok is pretty fabulous. But first, before you sneak away to Instagram, Tracy... Tell me about your memory of this night. <laughs> oh, I remember it so clearly because you, I think you and Jamie were in another part of the exhibit when this happened and mm-hmm. it was just me and Brooke. And I remember she was goofing around and looking at stuff and she was near the windows and I was sitting on a bench just waiting for her to finish up so we could go meet up with you guys when I hear her yell. And then she sits down next to me and she was like, oh my God, I did not expect to see an actor there. That just really took me by surprise. And I looked at where she had been looking out, and I was like, I don't think there are actors up there. It was clearly like an old catwalk for perusing the grounds. It was on the wall. Um, mm-hmm. So that's when we went to the employee and asked. And and the employee wasn't even phased. She was like, oh, no, that we, like, we definitely would not have people up there. It is not safe. And then she was like, did you see someone up there? Immediately. <laughs> immediately in on, like... Yeah, people see stuff up there. Um, But it was just really interesting to me because it wasn't a case of her immediately. Like, she denied the whole rest of the night that it was a ghost. She was so like, no, I saw a person. It was not a ghost. It was a very clear person walking. And it took her a while to even come to terms with the fact that she might have seen something paranormal. I remember her denying that because I instantly was on board I was like, it's a ghost. We know it's a ghost. It is factually a ghost. And I am so pissed that I didn't see the ghost. I know. <laughs> and she was pretty stubborn about it. And I I was just seething with jealousy. That You guys should know, we don't go every year, mostly because we all live far away now. But we try to go to Eastern State at Halloween as often as we can, even yeah. to this day. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eastern State has a really insane dark history. 
oh, we really should cover it on an episode coming up. Oh, I would love to. Oh, my God. Dibs. Yes, that'd be amazing. Oh, shoot. I was going to call Dibs and then I you thought, can call no, dibs. We can do even that. do a solo episode on it. There's so much history. There is. One of the things that I always remember is that in part of the penitentiary, they had cells that people would be in and the guards in that area would wear padded shoes so mm-hmm. that there was no noise and there was nothing for them to do. And the men that were kept in those cells eventually lost their hearing because there was right. nothing for them to hear at all. Well, it, so it we'll do a full history on it, but it was the first penitentiary ever created. The word penitentiary came from Eastern State. It was the idea of being penitent. So when it was first built, the cells were individual. You only had your skylight because you were supposed to look up to God and repent. And the guards would cover your head so you couldn't see or hear anything when you had to leave the cell. And whenever they walked around, they were completely padded in their shoes. There would be no sound. So there was nothing for you to do but sit and repent. And people went insane. People lost their hearing. It was considered extremely cruel. And then over the years, they changed the way that they ran the penitentiary. It it has a very dark history. And on the other hand... It is one of the best haunted houses that I've ever been into to this day. It's also Halloween just time. all year round. They have a tour and it's um, an audio tour. So you get a headset and a, a tape player that you can play at each stage. The best part is that it is narrated by Steve Buscemi. I didn't know that. I've never done the audio tour. It's so good. It's so good because you can take it at your own pace and it says like you're at number 11 and then you play number 11. Tracy, how come you haven't asked me to go on the audio tour with you? Because I went with my cousin when she happened to be in Philly. And also you live in L.A. (laughs) You're going again. Next time I come home, I can play tourist in our own home city. Yeah, absolutely. I would love to. It's a really, really cool tour. All right, guys. Not one, not two, but three stories this week. We're kicking off our ghost, our ghost passion with... Send us your stories, willingandfable at gmail.com or on our Instagram or Twitter or Facebook. We don't care how you send it. Just send us your cool stories. They can be ghost stories. They could be funny stories from your childhood. The more embarrassing, the better. Mm -hmm. We love to hear it. Or the contact form on our website. Yes. Oh, there's one more thing of housekeeping before we do our something good. Mm-hmm. I know people normally do the housekeeping at the front, but I'm backloading it. In the last episode, we had our first commercial. Yes. Yeah. For Diamond Jewelry. We're so excited. They are amazing. And so, like, full transparency, they are a company that I've loved for years. They, the owner, Libby, is good friends with my sister and I've gotten to see this go from something that she took from jewelry conventions and shows to an online business on Etsy to her own website to opening up a location to then having to open up a bigger location and I can promise you all from the bottom of my heart it is a genuine business run by someone who is so passionate about women and people of color and supporting local artists and sustainability and she's just a lovely person and so amazing. And so to, to get to do a commercial for them was like the ultimate highlight for me because I truly, truly love Diamond Jewelry and the whole company that they have. 
Right. And so you heard them in the last episode. You heard our commercial in this episode. And since we're a brand new baby podcast, we are in the unique position to be able to partner with companies that we just really know very well and love. And we're so excited to have gotten the opportunity to do a commercial for them. So know that we we stand by everything we talk about on our yes. podcast. <laughs> Um, I just wanted to shout that out because, frankly, I'm giddy about it. Literally between <laughs> last week and this week, my family sent someone else a diamond care package. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I wasn't kidding. We, I mean, like I said in the commercial, we send it for everything. Someone that we know was sick and we sent them a get well care package. Someone else had a like it was having a baby shower. We sent it baby shower care package it's someone's birthday we send a birthday care package yeah i uh, i'm blown away i scoured their website and the same veracity i put into research for our podcast i put into plumbing every corner of their website and now i have a few too many things saved on my favorites it's i can't look for a minute or else i'm gonna just go nuts <laughs> So that wasn't a commercial, guys. That was just us being excited about getting to do a commercial. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, 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 yep. <laughs> ah, okay. Tracy, tell me something good. All right. I thought long and hard about my something good, which I feel like I say every week. But this week, I really felt like I had nothing because it was just a really hard week for me. Um, just a lot of stress at work. And I've been watching all the animals by myself and... Um, just feeling generally fairly overwhelmed. But then Jamie got me back into watching a show we watched in middle school that I was obsessed with. It is Inuyasha, the anime. Wow, I remember you talking about that, but I I don't really know about it. Tell me. Oh, it's not. I mean, I I was gonna say it's not good. I mean, it's. Oh, wait, that's the one with the people with the ears. One guy has ears. Yes. Um, Okay. It is such a like classic late 90s early to mid 2000s anime and like it's the design the style um i am shamelessly watching the dubbed version so the english dubbed version because that's what i watched in middle school and it is just so refreshing to dive back into all the stuff i loved in middle school and high school without any of the internalized shame like mm-hmm. i am fully just Un, uh, like I'm just enjoying Inuyasha. It is terrible and silly and goofy, and I'm so happy with it right now. I unabashedly read fan fiction for all my favorite fandoms. I play D and D, and I dress weird, and I want to be a little witchy lady, and I, I just feel like I get to be all of the things that I used to like be ashamed of you know like being that weird nerd kid in middle school and now I'm a proud weird nerd adult and I don't care what people think and so that's what I realized my something good this week was is being an adult can be hard but you can spend your adult money on whatever you want I can buy candy and watch anime and feel no shame about it Oh, yeah. One of the advantages of being an adult is that you get to, in some small way, curate who you get to be around. So Mm -hmm. you can say no to people who shame you. And on the note of shame, I want to say some people who love anime are very anti-dubbing. And I just want to go on record that I know a lot of actors 
and dubbing directors who work very hard to make dubbing cool and true to the story and that's how they make their money and they're such artists so we accept no dubbing shame on this podcast you can watch anime in whatever form you want my stance on pretty much anything is if it's not hurting you and it's not hurting anyone else you do not get to shame someone for it end of story no also dubbing is the most fun i would love to do you know i'm obsessed with the idea of voice acting i just can't you know voice act so that kind of nips that in the bud I can podcast, and it's very fun. I've been reading a manga that I really love on Webtoons. I actually paid to read a couple episodes ahead because I like it so much that I thought, oh, God, this creator deserves my money. Which one? It's called Your Throne. Ooh, okay. I, I haven't read that one. Oh, it's so good. You, It's about this rivalry between two women, and you think that it's going to just be this female driven hate fest and it is in no way that all the people you think are bad aren't who you think they are it's listen it's beautifully drawn it is exactly the kind of potato chip read you want yes 10 out of 10 would recommend that webtoon all right rowan yeah tell me something good my something good this week actually changed last night so There was an earthquake in L.A. last night that woke us up. It was the most intense earthquake I've ever been in, but luckily everyone that I know out here is totally safe. It wasn't really a problem where I live, but I was up and couldn't go back to sleep, and so I was scrolling on the internet, and Tracy's and my old theater director from middle school, she was my teacher, her name was Mrs. Lucas, posted on Facebook as one of her things that make your life good kind of challenges. She posted a picture of all of us in our mixed up Romeo and Juliet casting flip cool show that we did. And it made me so proud that she still had that picture and she posted it. I remember that trip so vividly too. It I, that picture was so cool. And to see how many people in that picture I'm still connected with, even if it's in very small ways to, like, Rowan, very large ways, um, was really cool. I think there's a lot of people who don't have as strong a connection to people they went to middle school and high school with as I think we both surprisingly do. It is shocking. I I got to tell her, again, all on Facebook in a message, but I did get to say that you, me, Jamie, Taylor, who does our music, and Brooke, who just submitted a story for us, are all still friends, and we're still storytelling, and everyone who I just listed had a hand in helping us put this podcast together, and it just made me so proud, because I love... I loved Mrs. Lucas as a teacher. I think I followed her around like a puppy. She was (laughs) such a good director. She was uh, one of my teachers during the day as well. And she just encouraged me to basically go off on whatever research tangents I ever wanted and be passionate. And she also forced me to focus and like sharpen my intellect in a really interesting way. She didn't suffer fools. And right. mm-hmm. I 
think she made me a much more decisive, clearer um, debater, interestingly, but also just mind in the world. Yeah. She was so cool. And of course, just having gotten out of an earthquake, I was weirdly very emotional about this Facebook post, which is not like me. No, but it was it was really sweet. So I'm I'm glad that she did that, and I'm glad it was able to have such a a nice positive impact on you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, if people made your life good, tell them. Just tell them. Just tell people. Don't be a cool guy about it. Just tell people you appreciate them. Also, don't bully people in middle school because they might grow up to be half decent folks like us. God, Tracy, you look. I could have. I could pick middle school you out in a crowd. My eyes zeroed right in on you in that picture. Yeah, I had a look, and that look was uh, bad hair, glasses, and braces. That um, was just overpowering in a way that not a lot of preteens get to have. You looked fundamentally like yourself, though, under all of that extra. I mean, everyone everyone does, but I feel like I was so stereotypically the awkward teen. It's, like, not even funny. Tyler couldn't even recognize me. He could not find me in that picture for a very long time. That's funny. I, I picked you out immediately, but that was in your, like, short, straightened hair phase. I was a scene kid. We all had our phases. All right. That's going to do it for us this week. <laughs> And remember, stories grow in the telling. So if you like what we're doing, tell a friend. Or tell a foe. And we'll see you soon, okay? Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our music was written and performed by Taylor Ash, and our logo is by Jamie Harrison. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes, or find us at willingandfable on Twitter and Instagram to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite listening source. And of course... Join us next time for another round of ancient myths, local legends, and stories with staying power.